you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter number 12. As I mentioned last week, just a short excursion from the book of, of Mark. But Mark is where we've been for the last year to year and a half. And we began long ago um, to just take Mark verse by verse. And what a blessing it's, it's been. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the, the prophets. And, and we've taken just this entire book and desired to um, spend a little time in it, as long as it takes, just to get a, a deeper um, appreciation, view, and just um, picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I tell you, this has been one of the most beneficial um, things for me as a pastor. As um, I, I preached through a few books, and they've been good, um, but this one has uniquely um, influenced my own heart and soul. I'm in a way that the other books have not. Just seeing Jesus interact with the people, Jesus interact with the Father, um, Christ's teachings, His attitudes, um, just the way um, that He carries Himself and and ultimately will set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem, which is here um, we see in our text, and give His life on Calvary. I can't wait to get to that great portion where He um, spends His last hours and gives His life. And it is um, topped. Uh, with uh, with the resurrection and the crown and glory of the ascension, and now he's seated at the right hand of God, um, the Father, ever interceding for us. And that that was what was accomplished, and that's what the book of Mark is all about. That's the good news. That's the gospel that Jesus Christ enters into the world to save sinners like us, and he does it through his willing death, and he pursues the cross even with the joy that is set before him. Um, he endures the cross on our and for our behalf. Ultimately for the glory of God, but also out of a genuine love for sinners um, like you and sinners like like me. So we um, pick back up in Mark chapter number 12 and we'll begin our reading in verse number 18 as we pick up where we left off. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word um, out of reverence for it. And we will um, take our reading through verse number 27. Uh, Mark writes, By the power of the Spirit of God, inspired of to write Holy Scripture, these words. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Um, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left uh, no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as, as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore, you are therefore greatly mistaken. Let's pray. Again, Father, we just praise You and thank You for Your Word. God, we pray that You'll take Your Word now um, to the depths of our heart. We know that it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, dividing the very thoughts and intents um, of our heart asunder. 
And as um, difficult as that is some days, we pray that you'll do it, Lord, because we know that it's for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, make the word precious to us. Um, God, use it to mold us and to make us into your image. Father, um, we know that as it goes forth, it will not return void. So we pray, Lord, that our hearts are not hardened under the hearing of your word. We pray that it doesn't fall upon dead souls and, um, and hardened hearts, Lord, but um, tender. Uh, we pray for a tender, joyful receipt of the Word of God, Father. We pray that it will transform um, us by the renewing of our minds. We pray, Lord, that it will just work a work of eternal work in our hearts, Lord. And we pray that You'll do this work because we can't. So we give this time to You now, Lord. And just pray that You'll help us uh, to stay our minds upon the Word for a few minutes and that You will accomplish a work, Father, that only You can in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Just as a reminder, I know that it's been a little bit more than a month um, of us being in the book of Mark, um, but just to remind you, we're in the midst of Passion Week. Um, and while Passion Week only took a week for the Lord Jesus, it'll probably take us months to get through as we spend time just picking apart each passage. Um, not going superficial, but also not exhausting every single um, stone and leaving every stone unturned. That would be an impossibility. And, and we know that because volumes upon volumes have been written um, throughout the ages and they've still not exhausted the depths of the glories that we have here um, in, our, in our, our Gospels. Um, but it's important for us to remember that we're in the midst of Passion Week and this is probably Tuesday of Passion Week. Um, our Lord will give His life here in just a few days. And as He approaches Passion Week, the opposition against our Lord just continues to escalate. With every day and hour, the attacks are coming with greater frequency and greater fervor. There's a growing frustration of Christ, um, a growing hatred of our Lord, and this account is no, no different. Um, he's in the temple, he's ministering, um, and his enemies are surrounding him. And it's really pretty amazing the events that are unfolding and how quickly they changed. You may remember that just a few days earlier, our Lord rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem and the crowds and the throngs were all around Him and they were praising Him. Somewhat of an unofficial coronation day of the King coming to Jerusalem as, as prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, and it just took a couple of days um, for, for these men really to be at total odds with our Lord. But, but, um, but at the same time, we recognize that, it, that, that um, Jesus is part of the issue there. And I don't mean that in a negative way ultimately. I just mean that, that it's not um, 100%. Um, the onus is not laid upon the enemies. Our Lord has somewhat provoked it. Um, he sought it out. He has set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He's told His disciples um, that, the night, that the hour is nigh, that His work is almost complete. So what does He do on more than one account? He enters into the temple. Uh, one time, he's, he's preaching the Gospel, no doubt. Uh, repentance in the kingdom. Um, and, he, and he walks in and they're worshiping uh, themselves in essence and they're, they're greedy and they're filled with filthy lucre and they've turned the temple into a den of thieves. Jesus flips the table and he causes a ruckus and um, fulfills Old Testament prophecy and then enters in again the next day and these men gather around him and they just present question after question and opposition after opposition um, to our Lord. And up to this point, every man has failed. Uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders have all had their um, have all taken the Lord um, to task, and they've been immediately eliminated um, by our Lord as a threat. They failed. The Pharisees and the Herodians attempt to deceive our Lord, and it only backfires. 
All of them are walking away with their heads hung low as they've entered into the ring with our Savior and they've all been utterly defeated. And we meet in this portion of Scripture another enemy by the name of a Sadducee in which they'll have their turn to seek to entangle our Lord with a well-crafted battle of wits. You know, prior to this, the, 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 it seems that the um, Herodians and the Pharisees often attack our Lord on a moral ground or a political ground. Um, these men will gather around our Lord and seek to take Him to task with their wits. They'll have a theological battle for Him in which they think that they can um, the win. So, at first, um, if you're taking notes, we see our enemy. We see our enemy. Next, we'll see the entanglement. We'll see that followed by a Lord's exhortation and then um, end with His explanation. But at first, whenever we come to any story, um, it's extremely important for us to identify um, the characters and the roles that are being played. Um, our enemy here is the Sadducees. And this is the only story in the Gospel of Mark where we see an exclusive reference or encounter with the Sadducees. And the origin of these men is often debated, but many people believe, most people believe that they sprang up with the Pharisees prior to Christ's arrival somewhere uh, in that, that period of silence in 400 years. Malachi wrote the last book of the Old Testament, and there's 400 years of silence. And then we come to the New Testament, and then these men arise that weren't present in the Old Testament probably sprang up at some point during that time. The Pharisees had a, an, origin that was, um, no, an origin that was noble. They were defenders of the law. Um, and the same probably happened with some noble cause. Um, the, the, the Sadducees were developed, this sect of, of religious men who were engaged in the temple. Um, but at this point, we find that they are one of Christ's preeminent um, enemies. Apart from their agreement in uh, crucifying Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, interestingly enough, are often at odds or polar opposites. The Pharisees were the traditional conservative group you might consider to be um, right-wing. Uh, guys who, who held to tradition and wanted to uphold the law. Um, the Sadducees stand on the other side of the tracks, abandoning most everything that the Pharisees believe in, um, which is really the charge that our Lord will bring against them in this very text. Um, to prove that they're often with odds, I'd encourage you to, you don't need to turn there, but Acts 23 and verse 6, Paul's on, um, on, uh, he's on trial for uh, he's, he's been arrested. He's on trial for a number of things. They're trying to indict him and throw him into prison. Um, and, when, and the text says, but when Paul perceived that one of the part of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, uh, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. And when he says this, he causes a ruckus. And it could very well be that Paul knew that it would cause a ruckus and get him out of uh, part of the, uh, the issue that's going on there, the trial, maybe even the debate. It says that a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And then there arose a, large, a loud outcry, and then the Pharisees go at them, because Paul's I'm talking about uh, the spiritual things and supernatural things, and, and they say, well, what if he did see a spirit? What if he did see an angel? Um, and to save Paul, they get him out of there um, before it just devolves into a total um, fight. That they were theological um, opposites. It's very interesting that, that they're working together here, but at the same time, it's not really that interesting. Um, the theological liberals, the political liberals of the day will work with just about anybody to accomplish um, their, their, their immediate purposes, not recognizing uh, the long-term and the chronic um, issues with that type of plan when they're gone. 
Um, but again, they were the theological liberals of the day. They were the materialists of the day. They didn't believe in any, they did anything that they couldn't touch, taste, smell, or see. They were the rationalists of the day. They only believed in what they could grasp with their own minds. Um, you'll see it very rep- well represented even in this text. Because of these things, they didn't believe in a final resurrection. They didn't believe in the existence of a soul. Um, they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels nor demons. Um, they had no cons- concept of the spiritual realm at all. They rejected, um, again, in opposition to the Pharisees whom, who, who received the entirety of the Old Testament, and maybe a little more, um, they rejected almost all of the entirety of the Old Testament save the first five books of Moses. And that was, that was their canon of Scripture. That was their standard. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, um, and Numbers. That these, that these were the books that they rested all of their theology and their, their practice in, at least in a superficial um, sort. They were also an aristocratic group, primarily priests. They were men with great wealth and they were men with great power. They're largely made up of the priesthood, um, which meant prominence both in wealth. Um, and it, it, it secured them a significant status in social life and community. They're not the largest. They're actually probably the smallest party um, in the social fabric of Jewish society. Um, but at the same time, they're probably the most powerful and had the most influence. Um, they led in temple affairs and they were of great wealth and they were probably part of the highest, we know there in uh, Acts 23, that they're part of the highest um, authority in all of the land of Israel, which was called the Sanhedrin, that great, um, it would be like the Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court of our day. Um, they would have some, some tremendous authority and power and influence, not only um, have their hand in religion, but also have their hand in politics. So you can see why they would have a problem with Christ who's having a paramount impact upon the community. You can see why they would gather together with the Pharisees. John chapter 11 teaches us um, that, that, that that was one of the moments that they gathered together and said, we've got to get this guy. He's going to lead the people um, away from um, Israel, away from Judaism, away from our God. He's, he's too powerful. Christ is too influential, which often brings the greatest of enemies together for one common purpose. And, um, and here it is. In Mark chapter number um, 12. Um, this sect probably died out, at least we can tell, in AD 70 at the destruction of the temple. But at the same time, there's no doubt that the spirit of the Sadducees live on um, in our community today. Um, the problem is not with the Sadducees or with any particular sect, it's with the attitudes and the morals and the mores and the principles that undergird each and every movement. And this movement didn't die out in the 70, in 70 AD or in the New Testament times. Um, it's very well prevalent in our culture today. These people still exist. They only believe in what makes sense in their minds. They, they pride themselves in their intellect and in academia. They love to make short work of logical absurdities that they find in the Bible. They reject the miracles in the Bible. They reject the supernatural in the Bible. They reject hell. They reject heaven. They poke fun in, at, at the belief in itself. And any person that would believe such things, I mean, we, we would be just uh, you know the, an article of of repute to many people like this. And I'm not talking about atheists. I'm talking about theological liberals and seminaries all across America particularly, but all throughout our, all throughout our world um, who take a Bible and who use it and who abuse it and really abandon any authority um, in it. These people are, are probably more dangerous than the atheists of our day. Um, it's, uh, they, they claim to be agnostics or even Christians and, and they take pride. And I can point you to a number of them um, one particularly at 
I think it's uh, UNC Chapel Hill who is the leader in textual criticism. Um, there, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, um, who, who who takes pride in his teaching New Testament, um, uh, New Testament uh, to to uh, freshmen uh, freshmen entering in, most of which would hold to Christianity, but by the end of it, takes pride in having them question every single thing that they ever believed, bringing everything into question, bringing everything into. Um, the realm of absurdity, anything supernatural, anything miraculous, loving to take um, the, the seeming absurdities or contradictions in the Bible and taking them to an nth degree to cause doubt, um, to cause doubt and, and, um, and abandonment of Christianity. That's the type of men we're dealing with here. Um, that's the type of men that come against our, our Lord. They have an agenda. Um, they have a, 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 a purpose in mind. And that's what you see in verses uh, 19 through 23. Then some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, verse 18, came to him saying, uh, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And now there were seven brothers. Um, you see the entanglement of our Lord, or the, at least the, the, the desire to entangle our Lord. Again, they come to our Lord for a purpose. What's the purpose? Uh, simply to entangle Him into a knot that He just can't untie. Um, if He can't, how could He be God? That's the argument. Um, it discredits Him and the people won't follow. That's the idea. So they craft a theological question to play a game of the, of the greatest minds. Um, and their aim is to, to, to back Him into a theological corner that he won't be able to get out of. It's like many questions that atheists or agnostics ask today, right? They, they, they frame some type of a theological gotcha. Like, can God make a rock that's just too big to lift? If He's omnipotent and He can make all things, then why can't He make a rock that's so big to, that He can't lift? You know, where, where did Cain find his wife? How many angels can dance on the head of a needle? You know, things like that. Um, some, just some ridiculous things that they've Googled most of the time because they simply don't want to believe. Um, that's the aim. So let's look at our theological gotcha from the Sadducees, these theological liberals. They devise what they think is just this ingenious strategy based upon the concept that we know as, or we refer to as the Leverite law or the Leverite marriage. As I said, the, the Sadducees, they, they, they believe in the first five books of the Bible, at least in some sort. Um, so what you find here is a direct quote of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, uh, verses 5 and 6. The Leverite marriage was a practice where a man would be obligated or, or he, he would be uh, to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and the memory of the deceased brother. And it was, it was really a gracious um, law that would secure and procure the, the property inheritance and the, the, the family line. This first practice before the law is established is, is found in Genesis 38, verses 6-10 through 10, with a man by the name of Onan um, who shirks his responsibility um, to do that and ultimately um, he's judged as a result of that. Um, if you want to see it play out in practice, in some sense, you could always go to the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth had a kinsman redeemer according to the Leverite law. Someone, again, shoved her somewhat aside and Boaz came in and became her kinsman redeemer. You see that played out in some form of practice um, there. So the Sadducees directly quote Moses and resort to what is, um, again, 
It's 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 just a, what we would call today a reduction of absurd to absurdity. And what the Sadducees are trying to do is uh, with Jesus is show that a basic belief in the resurrection is untrue because of certain implications that are taken to the extreme. What are the implications? Well, you, you, here's the idea, and it's just absurd. It's, 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 something, it's something that people generally do when they're trying to discredit Christianity or any religion or just something that they don't want to do. They, they usually take the exception or just some, some absurd example and they try to argue against it. And that's not always a bad thing to do. I mean, if you can argue against it, then argue against it. Um, if it's not true, then, then, then don't believe it. Um, but, but that's what you see here. You don't see an agenda of the Sadducees coming to Jesus with an actual question to learn. Um, the, the tragedy here is that they come with a theological gotcha simply because they don't want to believe in Christ. They don't want a resurrection because if a resurrection is true, then a judgment is true. That's the theological implications of the second coming, the return of Christ, that if there is a final resurrection, that with that resurrection we stand before um, the Creator of all the earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He judges both the quick and the dead. He judges both the good and the bad. Um, so they, 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 we often form these theological gotchas or these reductions, these absurd accusations and assumptions uh, for the sole purpose, Romans chapter number 1, to cast off um, morality, to cast off responsibility because we don't want to be accountable um, for the things that God requires of us. Um, the problem is, though, that the premise assumes that everything in the afterlife would be exactly like it is here. That's the idea. So what's the theological gotcha? You've got a woman who marries a man. She doesn't have children. A brother comes along and takes her as his wife. Um, this happens not only once, but twice. Happens not only twice, but three times. Ultimately, it happens seven times. I think by number seven, if I was that guy, I would have been asking questions. You know, um, There's something fishy going on here. Number seven... Um, by the time the seventh husband died and there's no children, um, alarms should have been going off on in, in, in his mind. Um, but there's just this absurdity. How can there be an afterlife or a resurrection when in the law of God, this is their argument, made a provision which would be contradicted in the afterlife at the resurrection? Um, he asked, they ask, well, then who's going to be married to her um, in the afterlife? And again, the, the, the big problem with this is that they assume um, well, first of all, there's no resurrection and they're arguing for a resurrection. That just makes no sense. And they don't believe in a resurrection. But they're arguing against a resurrection and they're arguing against it on the basis of the absurdity of such claims. But their claims would are, 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 are argued by the fact that they are by the belief that they believe that, the, that um, the next life will be exactly like this life. Matthew Henry says, it's no wonder if we confound ourselves with endless absurdities when we measure our ideas to the world to come by the affairs of this present world. Another commentator says, God's power to create and restore life bursts the limits of both logic and imagination. Again, these men are men who, 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 who have no imagination. They believe in only what they can see, taste, hear, and smell. They can't imagine the world um, that exists beyond this creation being any different, so they use the basis of their logic to argue against um, the, the reality of a resurrection. Um, the, the, the commentator goes on and says, the glorious realities of the life to come can no more be accommodated to the pedestrian routines of earthly life than can butterflies be compared to caterpillars. The next life is not going to be like this life. That's what makes this, um, this, this assumption absurd. 
Um, present earthly experience is entirely sufficient to forecast divine realities in heaven. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven's concert or a Grand Canyon at the sun- sunset, he says. If their mistake is to use logic and reason to put um, the Lord and God in a box such that He is bound in, this, in, in the age to come to be exactly like this age, therefore it cannot exist. Um, and that's a, a huge fallacy. Um, so we see this entanglement come, or at least um, attempted. And then we see our Lord's exhortation in verse number 24. And He repeats it in verse number 27. 24, He says, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And that word mistaken in the New King James, and it's probably, I think, translated that way in the NASB if some of you have. And I'm not sure about the ESV. But that word mistaken is, is a word that is much more emphatic than what we give it today. We talk about us making mistakes. We talk about our children making mistakes. We talk about you know <clears throat> this thing like it, it was unintended. This is not um, the idea of the term here. It literally means to go astray, to wander off in a way, to be misled, to be deceived is what it could be faithfully translated. And some transcripts have it in a, a voice called the middle, which, which it literally means to perform the action upon yourself. It would be like um, passively you were washed. And, and um, this voice or this tense would be like you washed yourself. The idea here is that, that you were deceived and you were deceiving yourselves. It is self-deceit. It is self-inflicted. Your thinking has carried you to absurdity. And it's not because you're ignorant of the idea or it's not because you're a genuine seeker. It's because you deceive yourselves. He pinpoints the reason for their theological error, and it's self-deception. What did they deceive themselves about? Well, it wasn't about marriage, and it wasn't inherently um, about these theological issues. He says it was. He, they deceived themselves about their understanding of the Scriptures and the power of God. They were self-deceived by their faulty logic. And they used their faulty logic as a means to support their already made assumptions and conclusions. And ultimately, um, their, their, their great um, fault is not found in their misunderstanding of the age to come. But their misunderstanding of the age to come is born in the fact that they do not want to believe and they deceive themselves for whatever agenda it is that they desire um, to carry out. And that's something that we have to be very careful about because that spirit and attitude still exists in this age. And maybe even sometimes as Christians in our own hearts and our own lives. We must be very careful not to stretch the Scriptures farther than intended. And oftentimes when that happens, um, it's because we've already made conclusions, we have presuppositions, and we make assumptions, um, and we utilize doctrine or, 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 or the Scriptures to support that conclusion. And let me just say this, we all do that. Okay, Even as Christians, we are at a danger to do that. Nobody comes to the theological table neutral. You know, we are born within particularly America and we come with biases because of the way that we've been raised in Christianity or the way that we've not. 
We have ideas and conceptions of ideas and principles and, and preconceived notions and presuppositions. And we often come to church and find a church that, that looks just like us, sounds just like us, and is nothing more than an echo chamber because we've got all things figured out and we understand everything. We come as a theological Pharisee or a theological um, Sadducee. Either we've got it all figured out and even more than that, and we're legalists, and we're going to hold you to that standard, or we're theological liberals, and we and we could really care less about what you believe as long as long as you don't try to tie me down to those 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 things. And what we'll do to support that is oftentimes within the religious realm, scripture. We'll say, well, we believe this in our minds, and scripture says this. Therefore, then this must be true. And if that is true, then this must be true. And if that is true, then this must be true. And we'll be four or five points removed from the actual Scripture that was, that was given. And we'll take the theological implications that we've deduced in our own mind. Well, then this must be true when Scripture doesn't speak on it at all. And we'll either become legalists or we'll become liberals. we we'll either um, emphasize things that, that aren't really true or we won't emphasize um, things at all. It's a dangerous game. Let me just say that to speak authoritatively like the Sadducees on things the Bible never says and utilize Scripture to support it. The liberals and the legalists are both guilty of this. Um, they might be playing ball on different fields and in different leagues, um, but they're often guilty of the same sin. Sitting in the seat of expert and in judgment over the Bible and over the world instead of coming to the Bible and the Word of God as a student ready to learn. If we come any other way, we're a fool and we'll be self-deceived. And we'll even utilize the very means of grace that God used, that, that He gave as a gift, as the power of God unto salvation, and to sanctify believers and reach the world with the gospel. And we'll use it to promote ourselves and um, to advance our agenda. And that is why they didn't understand the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Their use of the Word is a misuse and an abuse as they would use the Word authoritatively on a matter that the text had nothing to do with. And in doing so, they denied the very power of God. They denied the resurrection. They denied spiritual realm. They denied angels. They denied demons, heaven and hell. Um, this wasn't uh, the, the emphasis here is that this isn't just a simple matter of ignorance, guys. They were dishonest with the text. And the sad thing is, is that they believed it. Um, I don't doubt that for a moment. That's what the term deceit means. They were deceived. They were deceived because they wanted to be. They didn't want to believe. It was because they would not believe because they did not believe. It wasn't because it wasn't clear. It wasn't because it wasn't right under their noses. Um, their intellect stood as a blockade to faith. That's the problem here. The problem is, is that they're not smart enough. It's not that they're not intellectual enough. It's not that they're not skillful enough. It's not because they're not religious enough. It is because they refuse to believe. That's the exhortation. And he repeats it in some sense in verse 27 when he says, you are therefore greatly mistaken. You are greatly self deceived. And then we move on to the explanation that our Lord gives in verse 25 through 27. He responds, he says, after the exhortation, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in, in heaven. Jesus responds in his first, uh, first piece of his explanation is, is, look, there will be a resurrection. He doesn't go into explanation. He clearly makes the um, the the uh, not the assumption, but the but, but but he declares the fact. Listen, for when the resurrection happens, I know you don't believe in a resurrection, but there will be a resurrection. Um, this is common teaching in Christ's um, teaching. He says to them, for when they rise from the death, Jesus believed in a resurrection. 
What is implied is that, again, the final resurrection, and we could go to John chapter 5, and you don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read a short portion of Scripture. Because the idea was is that if there is a resurrection, there will be a judgment. This is what Jesus taught. This is earlier in His ministry, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they know this. John chapter 5 and verse 21, you read these words, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but He's committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as the honor they honor the Father. Verse number 28, He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. They'll hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's the idea. There will be a resurrection and at the resurrection, God will reward in Christ those who are good and He will reward those who are bad. Um, Those who are in Christ will receive the reward of Christ's suffering with an eternal reward of glory and service for all of their extended eternal life. But those who are bad, those who have rejected the faith, those that carry on the attitude of the Sadducees and the Pharisees um, will also meet the Lord. That's the idea. And the second aspect of the explanation is that the resurrection, he argues from the Pentateuch. This is really interesting. Um, That he plays with them on their battleground. Um, yeah, the resurrection is taught in the Old Testament, but 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 even as a Christian, I'm just I'm going to say um, that it is um, interestingly sparse. That if you look for a a a direct re- reference to um, the resurrection, um, it'll be hard to find it in the 39 books of the Old Testament. You could go to Isaiah 26:19. You could go to Daniel chapter 12 and verse number two. Um, and, and you can find direct references, I believe, to the resurrection there. I mean, looking back from a New Covenant, New Testament perspective, um, as Christ reinterpret, or interprets the Old Testament, you could go to Psalm 16 and Psalm 22. Um, you could go to Job and other places, and you could argue a resurrection. Um, but in the first five books of it, it's, it's, it's seemingly not there. And this is the conclusion that the um, Sadducees had come to. That the first five books, you don't find Moses delineated upon it at all. What Jesus does here is a tactic and He takes them to task. And He, and he believes Daniel 12 too. He believes Isaiah 26, 19. But He knows that they don't believe it. It doesn't carry much weight or gravity. So what He does is He goes back to the Pentateuch. He plays on their playing field and He takes them to task utilizing a text that Moses wrote. What is, where does He go? He goes to that, 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 that phenomenal, um, that phenomenal uh, episode of the burning bush. That's what He says in verse number... Um, 25 and 26. But concerning the dead, they that rise, have you not read? And this would have been just a clear rebuke to the Sadducees. Um, you know, this would be like going to Wall Street and, and asking those guys, do you, do you know anything about finance? You know, in just a rhetorical kind of, um, uh, just a, a facetious type of, of way. Um, they believe that Jesus is coming playing on their field and they don't recognize that, that Jesus there is the creator of heaven and earth, that He wrote the book, that Deuteronomy wasn't just born out of the, 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 the finite pen of Moses, that, that Jesus is the orchestrator of all the world, that He's the author of Deuteronomy, that He wrote those things far before He ever put them into the heart and the mind of Moses, and that He understands and knows the very intent for which He gave the Scriptures. Thus, He brings them 
to his, what they think is their playing field. He brings them to his playing field, which is the Word of God. He doesn't argue from experience. He doesn't say, hey, look at blind Bartimaeus. Hey, hey, boys, bring blind Bartimaeus. They don't believe in supernatural things. Bring them, bring them blind Bartimaeus. We'll show them what God can do. Now, he doesn't argue for uh, those resurrections. He doesn't say, bring me the little girl or the little boy. He doesn't argue for miracles from that way. He takes them to the very Word of God. Why? Because um, as, as we understand from Luke chapter 16 and that, par- or that, that, that account of the man that's in, in, um, in, 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 in paradise and that man that is in Hades, a man in, in judgment and under judgment argues out um, that, 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 they would, that they would go to his brothers who are now in life and that they would ring some... Why? Because if someone was risen from the dead, then they would believe. But no, the prophet looks back at them and says they have Moses and the Scriptures. They have the whole Word of God. If they don't believe them, then they won't believe someone who's risen from the dead. Why? Because those things have happened and they happen all the time. God is a supernatural God, but, but the theological liberals and the legalists of the day and the theological adversaries of Christ and of Christianity and of a final judgment have just a, 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 a unique way of constantly discounting the activity of God and utilizing the Scripture to do it. So Jesus doesn't bring human experience. Um, he follows in Peter's footsteps who says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Um, that, that we, don't, we, don't, we don't rely upon the experience of man, although it's great and God is supernatural and God does certain things. Um, what He does is He argues from the very Word of God and He takes them to their playing field and He says and quotes um, Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 6 and He says, don't you remember... Like this, is, this is one of your favorite stories, you guys. Uh, don't you remember the burning bush passage? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of... Jacob, that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Uh, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is very likely what Jesus um, quotes here, um, it's that great uh, phrase that we learn of in John chapter number 8 and, and other places where he uses that, that, that phrase of the, of the I am. He says, I am the I am. And in John chapter number 8, he identifies himself to the Pharisees as the I am, the one that was before Abraham. Um, that, that Jesus uniquely uses this very phrase, I am, in the original to identify Himself as the I am of Exodus and the I am of the burning bush and the one that, 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 that Moses had seen that very day. This is what He does. Um, and He argues present tense, not past tense. He says that, in a sense, He argues that if your, um, your understanding of Scripture is true, um, then what you have to argue is that Jesus was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Why? Because they're dead. They're dead. But what you don't understand is that God wrote that I wrote um, in that moment that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because at the time of Moses, Abraham was gone, Isaac was gone, and Jacob was gone. We read that great phrase over in Romans chapter 14 last week of, that, that Jesus Christ died to be Lord over both the living and the dead. That those who are dead in Christ will rise again. And Jesus takes them to task utilizing the power of God in the Word of God to make His case um, that the Old Testament, that, that, that embedded within the Old Testament is a reality that, that God is the resurrection, that He is, that there will be a resurrection because He is the great I Am and He still is the God of those who have passed on. That's the, uh, that's the second portion of His explanation third 
he argues that there's no state of marriage as we know it in heaven. He, he does give them some credence and he somewhat answers the question. He doesn't leave them just flapping in the wind and wondering what, what about this marriage thing. Um, but he does give an answer that in, in chapter number uh, or verse number uh, 25, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. Then he, he turns, because that's the bigger issue. But concerning the dead, the resurrection is the bigger issue. The way that you treat the Word of God is the issue. The way, but, but he does give them somewhat of an answer. Um, and the answer is, is that marriage is not now as we know it. Marriage now as we know it will not be marriage in the future state. The marriage is an entirely earthly, temporal institution restricted to this world and this world alone. It's a temporal means of propagation and preservation of the human race through the fruit of the marriage covenant. And, and I just mentioned this, and I really don't think that this is the point of the text, but I mention it because maybe some of you are mulling it over in your minds, and this is a hard saying. This is interesting to think about. This is, uh, this is something that just doesn't make sense in our minds. Um, some of you ladies particularly, maybe some of you men that I've, I've talked to, um, you can't fathom a world to come that's not like the world now. You can't fathom a time when you won't have a wife or you won't have a husband. Um, but that's the teaching here. That the age to come is not to be confined to the age here. But that brings in our own minds maybe some, some discord, right? Um, as we think about the temporal relationship that God has given us here that is more meaningful possibly than any other relationship that we've ever had in this life, um, different than even with our own children, different with any other man, woman, child, even different with our own parents, we leave that to come to this. Jesus says, it's not like that there. Maybe that troubles some of you. Maybe on some days it troubles me. That um, The temporal relationship of marriage was, was a means to an end. It was, it was utilized and created by God to take dominion through a complementary companionship of husband and wife to procreate and to spread the image of God. Why? Because man is finite. It's also a shadow and a picture of a greater reality that we know of as the Gospel, the good news of Christ. That the husband is the image the, uh, the, and loved the wife like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it with His unbridled, unconditional, sacrificial love. And the bride is to reciprocate that love through companionship and joyful, willing submission to aid in that mission that God has given Him, which is to upbuild the kingdom. Now think about that for a moment. You know, those, all of those needs and some will not exist in the eternal state. We will not need to procreate because we'll no longer be temporal but eternal. Preservation will be eternal because of the work of Christ. Dominion will be given. We'll no longer need the shadow because we'll have the unbridled substance which is Christ Himself. We'll not marry nor be given in marriage, the text says. Why? Because we'll be like the angels. But at the same time, that's not to undermine the relationship that we have with our husband or wife now. That's not to say that marriage is 100% absent. No, the consummation of the marriage covenant will take place in glory as we see the bridegroom take the bride and the bridegroom is Christ and the, and the, and the, and the bride is the church. And we'll be made like Him and, and, and we'll be like as, as, with His majesty and His likeness when we see Him and we'll be, be like Him. Thus, it makes total sense that believers in, in heaven will be like the angels. They'll not marry nor they'll be given in, in marriage. So Jesus answers the question like that. Whose wife will she be? None of them. None of them. Because there'll be no state like you know it now. Don't confine the age to come to the age that is now. Know that God can work through different covenants and at different times and different ages um, in ways that He desires for the intended purpose. And I know that may be a little confusing. It may be saddening at times. 
It's harder to think of another reality than the one that's here. But I also think that sometimes that we get wonky ideas of heaven that way, right? Um, whenever we take what is now and we try to transpose it upon that thing that is to come. That's exactly what the Sadducees have done. That's what man has done throughout all the ages. I was reading of some uh, Vikings and some Native Americans and, and, and just other religions throughout the world. And what you'll find is that oftentimes heaven is, um, is just a poignant idea of what they, 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 they believe should be most valued in this life. Um, I think that um, it was Vikings who were by nature warriors that, that believed that they would fight all day. You know, where at night the dead would be raised and the wounded would be whole again and they would spend the evenings in banquets drinking wine from cups and made from skulls of their conquered foes. That that was heaven to them. Why? Because that's what they valued. They valued war. Um, during the First World War, there was a, a lovely little poem that was written about a man who had died for their country. It was written like this. They left the fury of the fight and they were tired. The gates of heaven were open quite unguarded and unwired. There was no sound of any gun. The land was still and green. Wide hills lay silent in the sun. Blue valleys slept between. They saw far off a little wood stand up against the sky. Knee deep in grass and great trees, great trees stood. Some lazy cows went by. There were some rocks, some rooks sailed overhead. And once a church bell pealed. God, but it's England, someone said. And there's a cricket field. I don't know much about heaven, but I can tell you I don't think cricket's going to be there. Now, if any sport's going to be there, I don't think it'll be cricket. Um, I had a lady that I, that I talked with. She was a seven-day Adventist. She was laying on the table at work, and we were about to do a procedure on her. And after we got done debating the Sabbath and the obedience to that command, she looked at me and she said, um, do you think dogs will be in heaven? And she was as serious as... She said, do you think my dogs will be in heaven? And she was as serious as a heart attack. And she's... And I looked at her and I probably uncompassionately said, I think there might be dogs there, but not yours. <laughs> you know, they don't have souls or spirits. I don't think heaven's going to quite be what you think it will be. Um, and we can't define our, um, our, our future existence to what we have today. But that's okay. Why? Because His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And you better believe that the, the, the relationship that you have with your husband or your wife will be better there without marriage than what we have here. It will be pure and it will be holy. You'll have a greater love and a greater knowledge of her or him um, than you had on that final day as you held hands and one of you or both of you gave up the ghost. It'll be closer than any honeymoon, any intimate experience that you ever had, any conversation or four, five, six decades of gathering together and growing. Why? Because you will be sinless. You will be perfect. You'll have a full knowledge um, of God and of one another. And that will be uniquely there. And enough about that. Let's get back to the point. He moves on and he, so he, he directs them and he redirects them um, about the great issue. He, he, he answers their question and then he puts the onus back on them, which is what we should do with the text as well. We shouldn't necessarily read ourselves into the text. This isn't talking about us, but there is a sense in which it is, isn't it? So what's the application that we can make? After we've seen the great enemy, we've seen the great entanglement, we've seen the great explanation, and that great exhortation. Again, we could spend more time talking about marriage, we could talk about angels, we could talk about demons. We could argue for the existence of the soul, we could argue for the resurrection, but I think, again, to hone in those things would, would be to miss the point. I think the point is the spirit of the Sadducees, that it was alive then and it's still alive today. 
And listen, again, the problem is not the group of people called the Sadducees. But the attitudes that live and breathe in the people like this, and it's still very much alive today. It's a spirit of skepticism. It's a spirit of pride. It's a spirit of sitting in judgment over God, um, demanding that He proves Himself in different ways. It's a spirit of superiority wrought in positions of power and wealth. It's a spirit of control. It's a spirit of the Sadducees. It's a theological liberalism. Is not something only in the New Testament times, but it's a battle in every age. Jude exhorts us that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Why, Jude? For certain men have crept in unnoticed and unaware, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Sadducees are one example of many men in organized groups that have set themselves against the church and against Christ Himself. They don't understand the Word of God. They don't understand the power of God um, because they don't want to understand the Word of God. They don't want to believe in the power of God. They utilize the Scriptures for their own glory and their own gain. And guess what? They are to be contended with. The faith that was once delivered to the saints is to be contended for in every generation. That's the application. How do we do that? How do we do that? We seek to understand the Scripture, number one, and the power of God. It's that simple. That's the best thing we can do. You say, oh, I thought you were going to give me some kind of tips on theological debate. I've probably watched 200 debates in my life. I love it. I love sitting across or seeing people sit across and just discuss and just take each other to task. Just this, this love and this zeal and this desire and this, 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 this pursuit of the truth. I love to see men just go to task with one another, not to, not to melee and not to win and not to do this or that and not to exalt themselves, but because they love God and they love the truth and they love the people of God. So why not teach us some tips on theological debate? Because the theological debate is the last thing you should do if you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. There are, there, there's more experts than we can count. Shake, a, shake anything at in their respective fields and they bring skill and the intellect to the table and Jesus proves over and over and over again that they're running a fool's errand. And they're sealing their, their, their fate and unbelief by the rampant attacks on the Gospel and a right understanding of Scripture. So first and foremost, you know, um, seek to understand the Scriptures. Sadducees debate, Pharisees debate, Herodians debate, scribes debate, atheists debate, agnostics debate, theological liberals and legalists, they debate all day long and they only heap up more condemnation. Why? Because they don't understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. And it's not that they didn't know. You may have a term there that says they didn't know the Scriptures. That's not what he's speaking about. It's very possible to know the Scriptures without knowing the Scriptures. And what I mean is that it's very possible to have an extensive knowledge of God's Word steeped with logical conclusions and positions on every doctrinal matter and even more that are a total wash because you and I have accomplished it 100% through human achievement and common grace that God has given to us in our natural intellect. You know, there's all kinds of smart cookies out there that are just solely academic and riddled with presuppositions that just aren't simply ready to let go of any of it yet because they don't want to face God. And you know what? They're deader than a doornail spiritually. Or maybe we're just nominal Christians. Because that's what we've always been. You know, we grew up with the, as a Christian. Um, we know certain things about um, God and about His Word. 
Um, you know, and we seem to be just as good as any other person. You know, we're working our way to heaven, knowing we should read our Bible, but at the same time, we're not at all um, serious about it because nobody else really seems to be. Right? I mean, God can't send us all to hell, right? That's the idea. So due to our hasty, superficial, or distracted reading, we, we know enough just to make us dangerous. And it'll be a danger to ourselves. And the Word of God to us really isn't what it, the Word of God really is, is it? Like we have a knowledge of the Word of God, but we really don't know the Word of God. We don't understand the Word of God. And why? Because we're self-deceived. Um, we're self-deceived. We're like men. Mining for gold in a hill filled with treasure that's only two feet below us, but we'll never find it because of misdirection, laziness, distraction, or a hundred other reasons. Part of it's because we're content finding other rocks, <laughs> you know, that are above, selling them for a decent profit. So why don't we just hold out hope for something greater? But at the same time, we're just content with playing with rocks. And that's what a lot of men do with the Bible. We get up every day and we just play with rocks. You know, we do it because we think we need to do it, or it's academic um, exercise, or it, it promotes our prestige, our power, our, our preeminence. You know, it gives us something naturally, but it's but it's not what the Word of God is supposed to be. You know, it's not a light to our path. It's not a lamp to our feet. It's not like honey out of the honeycomb. It's not like a hammer that just pulverizes the rock of our hearts. You know, the, the, the Bible's very explicit concerning itself. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's more, um, the, 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 the psalmist writes, the, uh, writes that it's more desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. We are to gather up all the treasure, that if we were to gather up all the treasure in all the world, all the undiscovered and discovered gold, silver, diamonds, and all the precious stones, calculate the worth from a worldly perspective, and it won't hold a candle to the precious treasure found and rightly understood from one page of the Scripture. That's why a person who understands something like John 3.16, and that's it, is a richer man than all the wealth of a man of a Bill Gates or a, or a Rockefeller. That the Word of God contained within it is the Word of God, but it's more than that. It's these things that it is to us. Isn't that to you? Has there ever been a time in your life where you're reading the Word of God and it was like a light just shone out of darkness and showed you that the path that you, if you continue to walk on will lead to utter destruction? You know, have you just been groping around finding rocks for the last ten years? And you think that you know the Word of God, but you don't know the Word of God. It's never illuminated and you're still groping around trying to figure out what your aim in life is and what your purpose is and where you're to go and where you're taking your family and your children. And utter anxiety and, and worry and stress and, and depression just overwhelms you because the Word of God you've never understood. You know, it's, it's, it takes illumination. It takes the Spirit of God and the power of God. Has it ever been just, you've been in the book of Psalms and you've been without hope and you've been without God, it seems, and you've been all alone and you read something like Psalm chapter 1 or Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 119 or Psalm 23 and God just overwhelms your soul with joy and it's like, I love honey and I'm, and I'm probably diabetic, undiagnosed from all the sugar that I eat. But, but this thing, give me this and take away all the honey and all the world and I'll be satisfied. Like, have you ever read the Word of God and it's just, it's been that to you? Sweeter than the taste that honey brings, more pleasurable than most anything else in this world. Have you ever been reading the Word of God and God just made Himself so real to you that it was like a rock that pulverized your heart and He brought you low? 
Have you ever seen God like John has in Revelation? Have you ever seen God like Daniel did? Have you ever seen God like, like Moses where He had to take His shoes off, where He fell on His face, where He couldn't see the very nature and character of God? Do you understand the Scriptures? And with the Scriptures, do you understand, do I understand the power of God? These things are not at odds with each other. Now, some people, um, some people go to one extreme or the other. And they spend all their life as an academic Bible thumper, you know, who's just deader than a doornail and just the worst commentary on what the scriptures teach. And then there's some that are just into ecstatic experience. Don't give me the Bible, give me Jesus. You can't find one without the other. And I'm not here to say that, that, that we're just to give ourselves over to the word in some, some mechanical way, that Christ is present in his word, that he is alive, and that the word of God is, is, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing us under the very intents and thoughts of the heart. The problem is, is that these men knew the scriptures. They didn't know the scriptures. They had no clue what they were talking about. They had no idea. And their and their motivations were just muddled with 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 intention and self-promotion and power and prestige and it was just a means to manipulate God um, to get whatever it is they desire. They stood as a teacher and an expert over the law, yet they were never a student of it. Are you? Do you understand the scriptures? Like that's when it becomes real. That's when it becomes something that you believe. That's when it becomes your own. Like that's when it becomes something that you'll live for. That's when it becomes something that you'll die for. Not simply because mama and daddy believe this, but because I have met with Christ. I believe the Word. It's a treasure not to be sold. That's what the Proverbs 23, 23 says. Buy the truth and don't sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction, understanding. You know, perilous times are coming. I know right now it's just persecution on Facebook, but God forbid that in the coming days some real things are going to be happening. And there's going to be people all over this land. And it's been, and there's, been, there's been people in every generation. And there's been people um, all throughout history um, that have had the truth. And you know what they've done when, when, when hard times and hardships come? They sell it. They sell their wisdom. They sell their instruction. You know why? For a, for a, for a bowl of soup. They sell their blessing. They sell their pot. And they sell it all. Why? For, 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 for comfort. For pleasure. Proverbs says that you are to buy it and not sell it. That it is precious. That it, and it that only happens when it's precious. When it is the Word of God. When it is the power of God unto salvation. When it carries the Gospel power with it. Whenever it pulverizes the heart. That's the only way a man could stand. You know, in the streets or in the public or before his children or in a church with a, with a tyrannical overreach of a government um, or a tyrannical overreach of, of a church. You know, who, who has a false gospel and they're propagating false, um, uh, false notions of the word. It's the only time that a man will be able to stand up and live and preach and declare the word of God faithfully when persecution stands, when persecution is nigh at the door. You know, that's the only way. I was reading this uh, just this week, listening about the Scottish Covenanters of. Of the 16 and 1700s, reading of the Waldensians and prior to the Reformation, reading, and I hope one day my children or the children of my children's children will read of the men and the women in Afghanistan. You know? The churches there that are being blotted out for the cause of Christ, what will they say? And what will be said of those men? That they bought the truth and they would not sell it? You know? At times in, in history and in prior to the Reformation, during the Reformation and after and even before, 
You read of hundreds of men and women who are pushed over in the, I think it was the Waldensians, um, were, were pushed over a cliff. Why? Because of this pesky little doctrine called justification by faith alone. You know? Like, uh, others were, were taken to task and, and brutally murdered and uh, locked in, or wrapped up in bags and hung at stakes and blown up. Why? Because they simply wanted to translate the Word of God. Um, why? So that, that Luther said that, 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 that he would be more afraid of a milkmaid with the Word of God than all of the popes in England. You know? That there are things, I know that last week we went over the, the liberty of conscience and said that there are things not worth fighting over, but let me tell you this there are some things that you buy and you don't sell. There are some things that all of America and all of the world, all of hell, all of, de- all, of, all of the demons and demonic entities of this world bring to our doorstep and say, don't preach the Gospel. That We don't sell. We buy the truth. The only way that that will ever happen in this church, and Christ will receive the honor and glory that is due His name when that time comes, is if you understand the Scriptures. That's it. Like that's, the, that's the undergirding principle. That's the motivation. The glory of God. Christ being dispersed, distributed, and propagated not only in this church, but throughout all the land. That Jesus Christ may receive that for which He died to be the Lord over both the dead and the living. That we are, we are to understand the Scriptures. It is to matter. That Christ teaches us here about the the, the, the power and the inspiration of the Word of God, plain and simple. Um, maybe you think that I'm some days and some preachers are just a little bit too um, technical on the text. We have to be biblical precisionists. We have to know the Word of God. We have to know what is essential and what is not. We have to know when to fight and when not to. Um, and that's what Jesus does here. It's interesting. His whole argument lies upon one little preposition or one little verb tense i am i am that's it that's his whole argument (laughs) i am he goes to deuteronomy 3 and 6 and he pulls something out nobody had seen before and probably you and i wouldn't have either and he argues the character the nature of god and what he will do in the resurrection based upon that did you know that throughout history that more cults have probably been formed more false gospels have been have been um, fashioned over one word in the original text. In the 4th century, there was a man by the name of Arius um, who created a controversy with him uh, among the Nicene Fathers um, who, who, who he argued that Christ was the first and the chiefest of beings. That He was like the Father, but not the same as the Father. In the original, um, they argued that the text said that He was homo eusios, that he was, he was like the Father. The Nicene fathers stood up and said, hang on a minute, we need to go back to the text. Now that's not homo usios, that's homoi. At the end of it, there was a little iota. You know what iota means? It's a minuscule little letter, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet that changes the entire meaning of it. The Nicene fathers stood up and said, we need to, we've bought the truth and we're not going to sell it. That this entire doctrine was built by the removal of a simple iota, a simple small um, addition to a word, four-letter Greek word, and by the removal of that, they 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 create an entire cult and they and they produce a false gospel. You know, they they deny the deity of Christ and the eternal nature of the Son. They say that He's a created being higher than the angels, but not God Himself. And that was something that they that that that, that we need to be um, uh, particular to me as 
a propagator of truth, as, a, as an elder of a church, as a leader of a home, a man who is just embedded in the Word, who loves the Word, who, who, who doesn't seek out controversy for controversy's sake. Let me just tell you, I'm the least, least controversial person in this church. You might not believe that. But, um, but, but the last thing that I hate is conflict. So we're not, we're not arguing for heresy hunters or to go out and to find conflict. Um, but we are arguing that when conflict comes to the door, we need to know when to fight and what to fight for and when to lay down arms. And Jesus knew when to fight. Jesus knew who to take the task. He wasn't simply walking to synagogue doors and arguing over minutia and devouring the children of God whom He'd saved. He knew when a heretic was at the door arguing against the deity of Christ or the eternal nature of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, um, the atonement, and, um, and so many other essential um, doctrines. But that's the application. Do you understand the Word of God and the power of God? And if you do, you can never sell that, man. You can't bottle that up and sell it. You can't... You can't put that on Craigslist and make a million, you know. You can't. Uh, you can't get on Facebook Marketplace and and uh, there's men doing that. There's men selling the gospel today, far and near, and they've been doing it for centuries, and they'll continue to do it. We cannot. All right. It does not. You can. You can put all the treasures, all the wealth, and all the and all the world into one bank account, and it will not measure more than John three sixteen who is able to secure the salvation of all those who believe if it is accompanied by the Spirit of God and the power of Christ. And that's the application of this text. Is that you today? Do you understand the Word of God and the power of God? Or do you utilize continually listening to the greatest of critics? You just don't understand this about the flood. You don't understand about this about Cain and his... Why? If you don't understand this about Christ and all the contradictions in the Gospel, no, sir, you don't understand the Word of God or the power of God. And I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. I'm not going to debate it. I'm essentially going to declare, as Jesus did, that um, God is a reality. Um, because I realize at the end of the day we can argue over the credibility and the reliability of the New Testament Scriptures and the fact that um, there is a creation and the fact that there is a Creator and that the world can still die and go to hell in a handbasket with a head full of knowledge. Like My, my aim is not to, to argue and it's not to debate. It's simply to declare the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners that He may take it into the depths of their heart and save them by the power that is is dwells within Him. Because I can save no man. I will seek out and I will pursue and I will go into the highways and into the hedges for this reason and this reason alone to simply declare the treasures that are all found in Christ and that He is the wisdom of God and that what we have contained within this 66 books is just, is just 66 books telling us that very thing. Do you understand the Word of God and the power of God? If you don't today, I beg you on behalf of Christ to repent and to believe in Christ. That Jesus Christ, on behalf of sinners, willingly made Himself like us in every point so that after 33 years of a faithful life of righteousness, He would give His life on Calvary and endure the wrath of God that we deserve. And upon our faith and repentance in Him, um, He contribute, attributes to us His righteousness. And all of our sins poured out upon His Son. And now, 
He's resurrected and seated at, seating at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who come to Him. So come to Him. You say, I can't. I just declare to you the words of Christ. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. When you find Christ, you find solace. When you find Christ, you'll find a suitable Savior. There is no sin so great. There is no um, darkness so deep. There is no... Um, yeah, that His ear is not ready to hear and His arm is not ready to save. You simply have to come. So come. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glories of Christ. Father, we thank You for the Word of God and what it is and the great treasures that we've found in it. Father, I pray that You would make it precious to us. Father, for those this morning that may be in me on many days who come to God's Word and Man, it's hard. And it's drudgery on some days. Father, I, I'm honest. And you already know that. Father, what a treasure we have. And would you show us that? God, would you convince us of that? Um, not to elevate the Word of God above Christ or, or, or you, Father, but that the, the Word of God would go forth for this purpose of revealing Christ to us, not only at salvation, but for the rest of our lives. Father, would you just continue to use the Word of God and may it become precious to us because of that, because it just we constantly come and we keep finding Christ in all of His glory. Father, we see some beauty that we didn't know was there before and we see a new angle of Him that, that Father, we didn't had never been hit with prior to, God. Um, Father, would you, would you just, just make the Word of God precious to us because in it we find Christ. We find Christ so many other places, but preeminently, Father, He's here. 66 books written just for us <laughs> to show us Christ in the Old Testament as He's comes, as He's coming, and to show us Christ in the New Testament as He's came, Father. Father, would you just, just, just destroy all of the loves of this life, Father, that are greater than you, but you just pull down um, idol after idol after idol and just give us an unbridled love, Father, for your Son. God, would you use the Word of God to, 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 to show us and to teach us that? Father, we need that because on most days we just abandon you. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the hymn writer said. And that's true. Father, you persevere so long with us and you're so patient with us. Father, we praise you for that. And we just pray, Father, that you would just continue the work that you've begun in us, knowing that um, that great um, pastor and preacher wrote to us, Father, that he which has begun a good work in us will complete it till the day of Christ. And Father, we look to that day. And in light of that day, Father, we live for you. And um, I pray, Father, that's a reality for all of our souls. I pray that's a reality for our children, Lord, that you'd make them alive. And the time is nigh, is right. That you give them some truth, Father, that they buy and they will not sell. That you'll give them something to live for, Father, something to die for. And I pray as us as individuals and us as a church will do the same. God, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories that we have in Christ and in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.